0: Good morning. Great to have you here. I'm really, really grateful just for the diverse community that God is creating here at Willow Creek, truly across all of our locations. I don't know if you know this, uh, but we are made up of about 40% people of color across all of our locations. And so I love it. Because it really is just a picture of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And get to experience that together, be one people, one church, together worshiping one God is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, we're so grateful you are here this morning. I want to welcome our Willow locations. Also welcome those of you joining us online. Great to have you here. Uh, I'm really excited about today. I think today is going to be a really, really special day. Maybe one that we will remember for a very long time. Now, as I think about my my couple of years that I've been a part of the team here at Willow Creek, one of the things that I've learned about you is you're a group of people that likes to be challenged. Uh, I actually was told that when I first joined the team. They said, Sean, we here at Willow Creek, we are a high challenge culture. And I remember when I first joined the team, I'm like, I don't even know people. Can I challenge people yet? Right? Because uh, I don't have a lot of trust yet. But what I've discovered over my time here at Willow, this is a this is a community of faith that understands we've got one God-given life, and we want to use that life to its fullest potential to expand God's kingdom and glorify Him, right? That's just kind of who we are. And I've watched over and over again how this community of faith just rises to challenges and just does amazing things for the sake of God's kingdom. Uh, we've already highlighted a couple of them, but it was a, a couple of weeks ago. We laid out this crazy goal that we might be able to pack one million seed packs together. Just so you know, we knew internally that that was going to require 75% of our church attendants to say yes to show up to pack seeds. And just so you know, 75% of a church attendant showing up to do anything, that is unprecedented. It doesn't happen. And yet you did it. And you showed up. And you packed a million seeds. It's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Celebration of Hope. Uh, I, I shared that we had this miracle goal, and it was going to take a God-given miracle to help us get there. We had a goal of raising $1.7 million to, to give to our global partners to fuel God's work globally. It was an <laughs> audacious goal. And we are not quite there, but we have one more week to give. And I don't know, I just think that you're the kind of people that love to rise to a challenge. And maybe, just maybe, God will take us over that finish line this week. Now today, I'm going to challenge you in a unique way, in a different way. I'm going to challenge you to do something that you're going to hear it and you're going to say to yourself, I can never do that. And I'm going to tell you, you can do that. And I'm actually going to ask you to do that. And so I just want you to lean in to potentially how God might lead your heart to do something that you never thought possible that you could do. I'll get there in a minute. But in order to get there, I want to take us to week two of the series we started last week that's called Unsung. Uh, This whole series is about the unsung heroes uh, that we see all throughout Scripture. These, These biblical heroes that do so incredible, incredible things. And there's so much about us learning from their lives that we too can step into our own unsung heroic moments of what God is going to do in our lives. And so today we're going to be in a story that might be somewhat familiar to some of us. It's the story of Mordecai and Esther. It's located for us in the book of Esther. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can go to the Old Testament book called Esther. We're going to be in chapters two, three, and four. Now, if you know anything about the book of Esther, you know that it's set in the, under, under the power of Persia. Persia was the, was the nation in charge at the time, and they had a massive kingdom. Uh, It it was a kingdom that spread all the way from modern-day India all the way to northern Africa. Uh, At the time, about 40% of the world's population functioned under the reign of Persia. I mean, they were a powerhouse. They were were wealthy. They were powerful. They were prominent. And when you get to Esther chapter 1, you meet the leader of all of Persia. His name was King Xerxes, powerful man, wealthy man. Who loved to invite people who would join him in the expansion of his kingdom. And he made all these promises that they too would enjoy the same wealth and power that he got to experience. And so in order to put this power and wealth on display, he decided he's going to throw a party. It is a massive party. And it's not just one of these like mamby-pamby parties. This was a 180-day party. Six months of music, dancing, eating, drinking. It was a crazy party. Now, as you would imagine, when you have unlimited food and wine for a lot of days, once you get a few weeks into this, it is the recipe for some shenanigans. And that's not surprising that you see some shenanigans in Esther chapter 1. At some point, when he'd had a little too much to drink, King Xerxes decided he wanted to do this. He calls for his wife, Queen Vashti. He asks her to do a little dance for the boys. Queen Vashti was not having it. She's like, I'm not doing it. And I read that, I'm like, good for you. You go, girl. She's like standing out, like, I'm not doing that. Now, back in the ancient world, you could not refuse the command of a king. And so after a little bit of discussion, what King Xerxes decided to do is he was going to banish his wife, banish the queen that she was now banished from the kingdom. Maybe a little bit of a hot-headed decision in a moment. But that's the setting that we have in the book of Esther as we eventually meet our heroes Mordecai and Esther. What's interesting about their stories is when you meet them, they are far from the heroes that they ultimately become. But what we learn so much about their story is about really what it looks like for God's purpose to reign through people's lives. What's fascinating about the book of Esther is it's the only book in all of Scripture that God is never mentioned in the book, God is never named. And yet if you read the book, you see that God is ever present in every conversation, in every twist and turn, in every outcome. God's fingerprints are on the entire story. And there's so much about the book of Esther that resonates with my own life that sometimes I'm wanting God to do something big. I mean, like, spe- like spectacular. I'm wanting the burning bush moment, the audible voice of God coming down. But what I find is God works in my life often like He works in the book of Esther. In ordinary ways... through through ordinary people, in order to do extraordinary types of things. That's the story of Mordecai and Esther. But far from heroes at the very beginning. Yet eventually they step into their God-given purpose. How about you? Wouldn't you want to be somebody who steps into your God-given purpose? Don't you want to be somebody that even though you're an ordinary person doing ordinary things, that maybe God would do something extraordinary through you? If you've ever longed to really live your life in a way that matters, a way that counts, to do something significant on God's behalf, and we understand the, the unsung heroic moments of our own journey, it all starts with this. We've got to learn to be people who realize that we have been set apart. We just realize we've been set apart and set apart by God. Now, when we first meet Esther and Mordecai, they have lost sight of this just a little bit. Let me, let me take us to Esther uh, chapter 2. Here's where we meet the first side of, uh, uh, of this heroic duo. It says this. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, who've been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those who've been taken captive with Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. So when you see Mordecai come into the uh, scene, we we learn a few things about him. The first thing we know about him is that he comes from the Jewish race. He's of the Jewish ethnicity. Now what's interesting about that is if you know anything about the Old Testament, the, the nation of Israel, the Jewish race, they were considered God's people. That God chose them from the very beginning, and that God was going to do a great work through them. God said, "I'm going to make you into a great nation. Ultimately, the entire world is going to be blessed through you." We now know, because of hindsight, it's because God brought Jesus through the nation of Israel. But if you look back over the history of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, what you'll discover about the nation of Israel is you can describe them a lot of ways. You can say in some ways that they were stubborn, in other ways they were disobedient. But despite the ups and downs, the twists and turns, the all-arounds, what was always true about the people is they were set apart to be God's people. That from the very beginning, God set them apart and said, I want you to live uniquely. I don't want you to live like everybody else. I want you to live differently than the world that I'm trying to change. And so practically that fleshed itself out in a lot of ways. And so they were told that they weren't supposed to worship the other gods that the other nations were worshiping. They were told that they were supposed to abstain from certain foods, that they were not supposed to intermarry with these other nations because God has set them apart. They were God's people. They were holy people. They were distinctly different. They did not look like the world in which they lived. But what's interesting is when you meet Mordecai, he lost sight a little bit of this set-apartness that would have been connected to his ethnicity as a Jewish person. You see, when we meet Mordecai, it says that he was connected to the citadel. What that meant was the citadel was the political thicket of the Persian Empire. Not only did he, did he uh, see his home there, he actually worked there as, as well. His life was so intertwined with the political system of the Persian Empire. Not only that, you see his name. His name is Mordecai. Mordecai was not a Hebrew name. Mordecai was a Persian name. It's a derivative of of the name Marduk, which is actually a Persian god. Here we have Mordecai, who was named after a pagan god, and his life is intertwined with the pagan political system. It would be almost like if somebody was a really strong, faith-filled Christian family and they named their kid Buddha we would think that was weird. Or if somebody was a, was a really, really strong, faith-filled Christian-believing family and they decided to go fight in the Taliban army. You'd be like, what? That doesn't make sense. And that's the juxtaposition of when you meet Mordecai that, one, he is a Jewish person, but his life is not set, set apart. His life is so intertwined with the pagan political system. How in the world did that happen? Well, the text Kind of tells us what happened. Here's the back half of that verse. It said that that he was the son of Jair, he was the son of Shimei, he was the son of Kish, who'd been carried into exile from Jerusalem. Did you catch it? He's three generations away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He's a third-generation exile. We don't know exactly what happened, but at some point in all along the line, his life blended into the culture in which he now lived. There was no distinction between his life and the pagan surroundings that he found himself in. There was no standing up, no standing out. It was about blending in, not creating a ruckus. In some senses, you would say, He traded his spiritual identity for personal security. Not very heroic. I would go as far to say that it kind of ran in the family. Uh, You are introduced to somebody else uh, a few verses later. It says this, now Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and her mother had died. What's interesting is when you meet Esther, you first meet her by her Hebrew name, Hadassah. Hadassah means righteous, and she would eventually live into her righteous name that she she is. But she's not known by Hadassah anywhere else in the entire book. She's known by Esther. The book is actually named after her Persian name, which is Esther. Uh, The name Esther in Persia literally means star. It was another connection to another Persian god. The other connotation of the name Esther was to hide or even to disguise. And they did that very well. They were God's people, Jewish people, but it was an identity that they hid and they disguised. It said very bluntly a couple of verses later it says that Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Disguise and compromise. That's where we meet Mordecai and Esther. That's what they're described early on in their journey. They look nothing like who they were called to be. They look everything like the surroundings that they now find themselves in. So much so that going back to chapter 1 when this king Xerxes is now looking for a new wife because he had banished Queen Vashti, he holds a little bit of a, you might say a, a, a pageant contest, but I think it's probably a little bit more like the reality TV show The Bachelor. Right? Right? King Xerxes is the bachelor, and he brings a lot of ladies in that he tries to woo for his own affection. Who knew that the first season of the bachelor was in 479 B.C. in Persia? Check that out. I mean, full of like a fantasy suite and all. And what is interesting is that Mordecai enters Esther into the first season of the bachelor. And he basically says, don't let anybody know who you really are. Disguise, compromise, whatever it takes to get the final rose. And she did. Their identity as people of God who've been set apart by God was buried under layers and layers of compromise. How about you? When people look at your life, do they see a distinction between your life and this world in which we live? You and I, much like the people of God in the Old Testament, we are called to be set apart, distinctly different. Not look like the the world that surrounds us. Paul writes it this way. Book of Romans, chapter 12, it says this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is his good and pleasing and perfect will did you catch what it says at the beginning do not conform to the patterns of this world because you're set apart distinctly different Those who claim the name of Jesus don't look like the world in which we live. We should see a distinction between our lives and the world in which we live. Now, the older I get, and you probably observe the same thing, the the older I get, the more of a distinction I see a difference between the trajectory of where this world is going and the trajectory where God is calling our lives. Very different. I'm watching as our country, our culture, the value system going in a completely different direction than where God's calling us. The question is, when we face those realities, what do we do? Do we stand up? Do we stand out? Do we just blend in? Take the easy road. Don't rock the boat. God's people were supposed to be set apart. What does that mean practically? It means for those who claim the name of Jesus, my assumption is those people should handle conflict differently. It should be seasoned with grace and truth. My, my assumption would be that, that those who are claiming to be people of God would be people who see disagreement differently. Disagreement's inevitable, division is optional. And people of God choose unity particularly with one another. People of God are marked with grace. They're marked with forgiveness. They're marked with choices that are connected to a value system that's different than the world in which we live. Here's why this matters. Uh, Around here at Willow, we talk a lot about changing the world, but here's the truth. No one has ever changed the world by doing what it is already doing. Does that make some sense? If you want to change the world, we got to live differently. we got to give the world a compelling reason to do something different, right? No one has ever changed the world by doing what the world is doing because God's people have been called to live a life that's set apart, that's uniquely different, that's distinctly different. It's only then and then only will we be able to step into the heroic things, the God-given purpose that God has for me and you. Recognize that your life has been set apart. Here's the second piece. That we've got to be people, if we want to step into our God-given purpose, we've got to be people who are willing to, what I would say, embrace the test. Embrace the test. I would go as far to say this. When you meet Mordecai and Esther in the book of Esther, God really can't do a whole lot with their life. Their life looks exactly like the world that God is trying to change. But God gives them, a, what I would say, a test, an opportunity to do it different. That God needs to bring a change in their lives because if God brings a change in their lives, God can bring a change in the world through their lives. And so God gives them a chance to set their own lives apart, to, to look distinctly different. He gives a test to both Mordecai and to Esther, two different tests with the ultimate same purpose, to draw their lives closer to God so they can be agents of change for him in this world. Here's Mordecai's test. Uh, Mordecai has this test of whether he, or not he will bow down to a guy by the name of Haman. You meet Haman in chapter three, it says this It says, After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. That is really fun to say, just so you know. Uh, how about let's just say that after me, just because I want to give you the same joy that I just got. So somebody say, Hamadatha, the Agagite. Okay. Um, So here we go. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him the seat of uh, honor higher than all that of the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. When the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Do you see what's happening? Uh, King Xerxes honored this guy by the name of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Kind of sounds like an evil, villainous type of name, doesn't it? And what's interesting about that is, Not only did he honor him to kind of the the right hand, the the second in command in all of the empire, but said there was a decree, an order, that every time you came in Haman's presence that you would bow down to him. Now that would not have been uncommon in the Persian empire. What Persia did is when they conquered a nation, they allowed that nation to worship their own gods, but they asked them to also worship the Persian gods. Some of the Persian gods were actually people in power in the Persian empire. And so there's a command that says that you've got to Bow your knee to Haman every time you're around him. Now, here's the challenge. Mordecai worked in the citadel. He lived at the citadel. He would have brushed shoulders with Haman all of the time. And even though he's three generations removed from the exile, he hasn't lost sight of all of his Jewish identity. He knows it's somewhere deep within him that as a a Jewish person, as a person of God who's been set apart and called out, he was not to bow his knee to anybody or anything other than God. And it's deep within him. This command goes out, Haman walks by, and Mordecai passes the test. He refuses to do so. Now, in the moment when he refuses to bow that knee, what what he immediately does is he busts himself out. He can no longer hide the fact of his Jewish identity. It is now on full display as he's the only knee that is not bowing. And so day after day, this happens. People are going, what up with that, man? You're going to get yourself into trouble. But he's okay now with... Taking a stand, here's the next verse. It says, therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel or, or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the entire kingdom of Xerxes. Holy smokes! That escalated quickly. You have Haman, who is feeling pretty good about himself, this command for people to bow down. Mordecai refuses, and by refusing, Mordecai not only jeopardizes his own life, but puts into jeopardy every single Jewish person throughout the entire empire. Haman takes it. He takes this information back to the king. There's a decree that that, that literally will lead to the extermination of the entire Jewish race. Houston, we got a problem. But the beautiful thing is, even despite such incredible opposition, even when his own life is on the line and his entire nation's life is on the line, Mordecai is now willing to take a stand. He's willing to be set apart. He's he's willing to, to really stand up for God when nobody else is willing to stand up for God. He's passed the test. Esther's about to get her own test. What's interesting is Esther's test looks a little bit different. Again, as I mentioned earlier, she got the final rose. She's now the queen of Persia, even though the king doesn't know of her Jewish descent. And so Mordecai asks her for a little bit of help. And and, and she's a little bit resistant. Here's what she says. She says, all the king's officials... And people of royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Here's what Esther's saying. Esther's saying, Mordecai, I see the problem. I see the problem with our entire people. But I'm not sure I can help you out. I mean, there's a law in the country that if anybody approaches the king that's not summoned, even the queen, that person can be put to death. Cuz, I'm sorry. There's not a lot I can do. It's interesting as you read into Esther's resistance. I understand it because she's made it. I mean, she's in the palace. She's got a career. She's got wealth. She's got things going on, right? I mean, she no longer has to ride the bus. She no longer has to live on food stamps. She, no she doesn't have to you know, you know, have those types of social services. She's, she's, she's in the palace. Like, I'm sorry for you guys, but, but I'm not just a Jew. I'm kind of an upper Jew right now. And the question becomes for Esther. Will she see her position as a blessing Will she see herself as the blessing? I think there's a difference between receiving a blessing and being a blessing. And that's Esther's test. Will she see the blessing really just for herself or will she see the blessing as something to be extended through her? I would go as far to say if you look at scripture and you look at the word blessing, blessing is always a twofold piece to it. I would say it's provision plus a purpose. It is resources plus a reason. It's not just having something. It's doing something in particular with what you have. The blessing is not in what you have. Blessing is when you choose to give it away. So for example, for some of you, you have an incredible marriage. You might call it a blessed marriage. I'm fortunate enough, today is my wedding anniversary. 18 years today, which is pretty awesome. And God's blessed me. I have an amazing, amazing wife. We have an amazing relationship. But again, am I just going to be blessed or do I see it as an opportunity to be a blessing? For those of you who live in a healthy relationship and healthy marriage, that's amazing. But use it to be a blessing. Because there might be a younger couple around you that could really use your mentoring. There might be a struggling couple around you that could, could, that re- could really use your help. Don't just have a blessing, be a blessing. Uh, for some of you, you might be very successful people in the business world. That's incredible. I'm so excited and happy for you. But don't just have a blessing, be a blessing. In other words, there might be some sort, somebody that's up and coming in your company that if you were to take them under your wing and mentor them, they might be able to get further faster because of you. Or maybe there's somebody that you know that, that, that's incredibly smart, but they don't have the support around them in their family unit like you had to get you where you're at. And if you were to invest in them, help them get some of the resources that, at, that you might help them become what they would never be able to come without you. Don't just have a blessing, be a blessing. You know, for some of us, we're financially blessed. You know, God has entrusted a lot of resources to us. That's great. Don't just have a blessing, be a blessing. Blessing is only as good as what we're willing to allow God to do through us. That is the dilemma, the test that Esther is trying to face. Will she just have the blessing in the palace? Or will she recognize that God put her there for a specific reason and a purpose? Not to just be blessed, but to be a blessing. And so Mordecai pushes back on her. And I love Mordecai's words. Here's what what Mordecai says to her. He says he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And here's the line. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I love those words that roll off the lips of Mordecai. That he says, There is gonna come a moment that the king's gonna find out your true identity. Don't think that you will be spared from this. That if God doesn't use you, if you're not willing to stand up and stand out for God, if God doesn't use you, I promise he'll just raise up somebody else. And that's the beautiful thing about God, is that God is not limited by, by any, any person or any human. If, if one human says no, it's not like God doesn't have another option, right? God is not limited by you and I. Now, God desires to use you and I, but if for whatever reason, we're not willing to be used by God, God's plans will not be thwarted by my no. God will just push me out of the way and raise somebody up who's willing to say yes. It's almost like if, if I'm at one of our Willow locations in the suburbs and I'm wanting to head to the city, there's usually a direct route for me to get there, right? I take one of the interstates into the city. But it's not the only way there. Uh, there's lots of ways, lots of roads that I could take to get there. Here's the beauty. God wants to use your life and your life and your life and your life. But if for whatever reason, we don't allow ourselves to be used by God. God's mission, God's plan will continue. How do I know that? Because God promised that his plan would be made perfect all the way to completion whether I participate or not. God wants to use your life and my life. He wants to use Mordecai's life and Esther's life. And so Mordecai pushes her that who knows that maybe you are where you're at for such a time as this. Realize you've been set apart. Embrace the test. And here it is. Be people who are willing to take the risk of faith. Be willing to take the risk of faith. I love Esther's response. It's beautiful. She says, okay. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my tenants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And catch this. And if I perish, I perish. I love the boldness. I love the courage. I love the risk. Heroes are born in these moments because it's a risk. But think about every great heroic thing that's ever been done in this world. Think about every heroic moment in all of Scripture. It started when somebody was willing to take a risk. What is, what is a faith risk? Faith is, is, a will, is, is the willingness to do what God says to do, even though the outcome is not guaranteed. Even though I don't know how it's going to play out. Even though this whole thing can blow up. But I'm willing to take the step anyway. I mean, think about it. It was, it was Moses who took a step of faith into the Red Sea before the waters walled up and allowed the, the Israelites to pass through. I mean, it was Daniel who took the, the risk of faith, being willing to be thrown into the lion's den without having any knowledge that God had already fed them a snack and they weren't going to eat him for dinner. It was Peter who took a faith risk of stepping out on the water toward Jesus in a storm, having no idea if he would drown that day. Sometimes God calls us to something heroic, and it always requires a risk of faith when we don't fully know the outcome. Willow, I believe that we have some heroes in our midst. People who are willing to say, my life is set apart, I'm going to live distinctly different. People who are willing to embrace the test, whatever that looks like, and people who are willing to take a step of faith when I don't know fully what the outcome's going to look like. Can I lay a challenge in front of you? Okay, somebody's somebody's ready for a challenge. <laughs> a few people ready for a challenge? All right, I started and I told you I'm going to challenge you to do something today. And I told you the moment that I tell you what it is, the first thought in your mind is like, ah, I can't do that. And I'm going to tell you, you can do that. And I'm going to ask you to do that. You ready for it? All right, this year, I'm going to challenge you to run the Chicago Marathon. You're like, okay, Sean, you lost me. You lost me. You said the words run and marathon at the same sentence. Like, I'm out. Like, I, I I can't do that. Before you, like, totally count me out, let me share with you a little bit of the backdrop of the story. There have been pockets of people around Willow for literally well more than a decade who've decided to move their feet for the sake of people around the world, to provide clean water for people all around the world by by walking or running the Chicago Marathon. It seems crazy, right? Uh, but, But these pockets of people have always existed at Willow, but we've never done like a big effort trying to pull together a huge team across Willow until now. And the reason we've never done it before is we could never find a connection between that work and our, our, our like global strategy as a church. We wanted to see those things one end of the same. And so a couple months back, myself and a couple of members of our team uh, met with an organization called World Vision. We partnered with World Vision with a lot of different things. They have a huge team that, that walks and runs the Chicago Marathon every year and they they raised money for clean water efforts. And so our question to World Vision was, if we put together a team at Willow, would it be possible for every dollar that gets raised for that team to actually go to put clean water in areas where our global partners already exist? And they said, I don't know. Let me find out. And they came back a couple of weeks later, and they said, "We, we found a place that there's overlap between the work that we do and the work your partners do particularly in the state of Rajasthan, India. And in Rajasthan, India, if you know anything about that particular part of India, it's in the northwest part of India. It is the, it is the state with the largest land mass in the country of, of India. It is home to 84 million people and at the same time has less than 1% of the clean water in the entire country. Water security is a huge, huge issue. Our partners have identified that as a huge, huge issue. And so World Vision came back to us and said, if you put together a, a, a team uh, for uh, through Willow Creek, every single dollar that gets raised for that team, we will use to put clean water, uh, you know, wells and clean water, make clean water available in that particular part of, of the globe, really supporting the global work that Willow was already doing. And I thought, ha-ha, that's the ticket. We can do that. And so we began to think about that. We began to pray about it. And we, we, we started... Praying about it and dreamed about it, and said, Not only only should we put together a team, I think we should put together the largest team that Team World Vision has ever assembled in their 17 year history. I think we can do that. (laughs) And not only that, I actually think that we can raise more money than any team has ever raised in the history of Team World Vision in their 17 years. I actually think that's possible. And so you may go, You might be sitting there, you go, Well, Sean, it feels like a great cause. I'm totally in for the cause. But the thought of me actually participating in the Chicago Marathon, that come on. Like, I can't do that. Yes, you can. I'm going to tell you a couple things. The first is this. World Vision has a plan, like a training plan, that will take you from the couch to the marathon finish line. And if you'd like, right back to the couch again. (laughs) It is a training program that has literally worked for over 100,000 people. 80% of the people who have participated in these marathon experiences with World Vision have never run before. This is not for like elite athletes. This is for everyday Joes like you and me, okay? Uh, the, the Team World Vision, they call themselves the back of the Packers because they always finish last in these races because it's not about finishing first. It's not about the level of your fitness. It's about the size of your heart to move your feet for people who matter. Here's the second piece. Is there people who've already gone before you that proven that can be, this can be done? I'm going to put a couple pictures up on the screen. Uh, this, is, this is Henry on the left. Henry's 86 years old when he ran his first marathon. There's Ron in the middle. Ron was 300 pounds when Ron said yes to jumping into the marathon. It was, it was more walking than running at first, but it was possible, right? Uh, this, is, this is Kathy on the right. Kathy's a school teacher. And she described her own journey, just the labels that she felt like she wore, that she said, my life was I, was, I was divorced, scattered, messy, borderline depressed. Then I jumped on this team, and new labels began to affix to me of discipline, courage, faith. And I wore this superhero cape in my classroom to show my students the ordinary people can do heroic things. And that's the heartbeat of this team. You don't have to be an athlete. You don't even have to, like, have run anything anywhere. You don't even have to be somebody who runs if you're chased, right? <laughs> you just have to have an openness and willingness to take a faith risk for God. Our goal is to be able to provide clean water for 10,000 children. 10,000 children like Grace. A good buddy of mine uh, sponsors a child through World Vision. I sponsor a few of them myself. And he had the opportunity to travel to Africa to meet his sponsor, Child Grace. When he was there, they were talking a little about clean water that was brought to the area in which Grace lived. And he asked her, tell me the difference that clean water has made in your life without batting an eye, she says, I want to be a lawyer. And he thought, maybe I wasn't clear with my question. You know, because I didn't ask, like, what did you want to be when you grew up? I just asked, like, what difference is clean water made? And so it was kind of a confusing conversation when Grace's mom jumped in and said, you don't understand. Grace had to walk about six kilometers multiple times a day to, to retrieve dirty water. And because of that, she wasn't able to go to school. But now that clean water is accessible in our own community, she can go to school. That's the difference that it's made in her life. She can raise her eyes and dream again. She wants to be a lawyer. My friend Josh said that moment marked me. Now think about what would it look like for Willow Creek to put together the largest team that's ever run the Chicago Marathon, raising the most money that World Vision's ever raised the Chicago Marathon. So that story of grace can be multiplied 10,000 times. Willow, you can do this. In a moment, I'm going to show you a quick little video. As I show you the video, two voices are going to speak into your head. One voice is going to tell you, There's no way you can't do this. Other people should do this instead of you. And there's another voice that's going to start talking and it's going to say, What if? What if I took a risk of faith? What if I stepped out of my comfort zone? What if I did something that I didn't think I was capable of doing? And in doing so, if you listen to that voice, you will change other people's lives while changing your own at the same time, I promise. That who knows, that maybe, just maybe, God brought you here today for such a time as this.